I don't know what the results on Tuesday are going to be, but I know who's still going to be sitting on the throne at the end of the day. We're coming here this morning to celebrate the name above all names, the Lord above all lords, and the King above all kings. And the truth, the most powerful political statement that we could ever make, Jesus is Lord, is the banner that we hold up in this place today. So Father, we come to you and we praise you that you have exalted the name of your son, Jesus Christ, above every other name. And so, Father, we ask that it would be our chief ambition this morning to praise his name and to worship his name and to honor his name above all names, knowing that he is the only name under heaven by which any of us can be saved, that he alone can bring the salvation and healing and redemption that we most need. So, Father, we ask now that you would submit us under the authority of your word. As your word tells us in Psalm 86, will you give us undivided hearts? Would we leave this place today, Father, with there being no uncertainty about where our primary allegiances lie? And would the banner that exists over our lives be that Jesus is Lord? So Holy Spirit, have your way in this place today. Father, edify your church and glorify your name. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. 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 You can go ahead and have a seat, and I want to welcome you this morning. Uh, If you're here today as our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online uh, this morning as well. Uh, Before I jump into things, I want to say a big thank you to Cole uh, for filling in last week while our family and I uh, were away, and uh, he is a youth pastor. You never know about those youth pastors. I think he did a perfectly adequate job uh, last week. Cole did fantastic and so incredibly grateful um, for the word that he brought for our church family this week. Make sure you thank him again on your way out this morning. Uh, But if you're here with us today for the first time, what we've been doing uh, for the last several weeks is we have been walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And so this morning, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bible, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, uh, these words will be available on the screen this morning as well, uh, and invite you to, to follow along with us as we work through this text. Well, what's in a name? What's in a name? Over the last few months, uh, as we have driven our boys to school in the morning, they couldn't help but notice the sudden appearance of hundreds of signs that were littering the sides of the roads and cluttering intersections uh, that were promoting the names of various candidates who were running for different political offices. And uh, Gideon, our oldest, who's seven, he also likes to check the mail, and he has noticed over the last several weeks that many of these names have magically started to appear each week uh, in our mailbox. And so a couple weeks ago, he comes downstairs for breakfast one morning. We're having uh, just some uh, side conversation, and out of nowhere, he just asked this question. He says, Dad, why are names so important? I said, buddy, that's a really good question. And so we spent the next few minutes talking about how a name represents not just a family heritage, a name can also represent a legacy. Name can also represent history, both good and bad. Names can be associated with extraordinary good. You think Billy Graham or Harriet Tubman. Names could also be associated with extraordinary evil. You think Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden. And I reminded Gideon that morning of uh, the beginnings of his own name. The story of Gideon is found in Scripture, Judges chapter 6 through 8. And we learn from those uh, stories how the name Gideon means mighty warrior. And so I talked to him how, uh, how God has always been able to display the fullness of his power and his glory, even through the weakest of men, and that it's always been our prayer for his life that God would show his strength through him. So names are significant. And and right now, we're in the midst of one of those seasons where we are being inundated with names. Each one of these names promising to be the best candidate who will lead us forward as a people. And as a nation, we are increasingly being defined by where we do or don't align with these names. 
These names haven't only divided political parties, these names have divided our nation. And even more than dividing the nation, these names have divided friends. They have divided families. They've even divided churches. This election's been labeled by some as the battle of the soul for our nation, and many see this as the most important election in our nation's history. But with all due respect to the gravity of this election season, there's a much more urgent matter at hand this morning. Because far more important then the question of who will receive your vote on Tuesday is the question of who you recognize as the Lord of your life. We talk during this season about what makes all of these particular candidates different, but I want to talk for just a moment this morning about what makes all of them the same. And what makes all of them the same is that they are completely inadequate to bring salvation to your soul. So with all due respect to the events that are coming up this Tuesday morning, this morning we're going to stand here and we're going to declare one political statement above all else, and that statement is that Jesus is Lord. We gather here together this morning. I recognize that ahead of Tuesday and, and in the months ahead and the years ahead, many of us come in here this morning, you're unsettled, you're anxious, you're frustrated, you're angry. There's a, a major range of emotions and tensions that we all experience as we walk through this season. And I'm reminded of the words of John Newton, who authored the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. There is one political maxim which comforts me, the Lord reigns. And we know that regardless of the outcome on Tuesday, that maximum will remain true. So this morning, we're going to see very simply that Jesus is the name above every other name. And because he emptied himself as the lowest servant, he's going to be exalted as the highest Lord. And so we're going to stand here this morning as clearly as we know, working through this, and we're going to preach the message of the gospel. And the reason we want to do this with such clarity two days before this election is because I fear this is where many of us have gone in the political landscape today is deep down inside, either implicitly or explicitly, we do not believe that the gospel is enough. I think there's times that we convince ourselves, particularly through election seasons, that the Lord in different ways needs our help. He needs our assistance. But we need to understand this morning, the gospel is not Jesus plus Donald Trump. The gospel is not Jesus plus Joe Biden. The gospel is not Jesus plus the Supreme Court. The gospel is Jesus, period, or it is no gospel at all. And so we hold up this morning above all else the banner that the Lord reigns and Jesus is Lord and the name above all names. Let's read again from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see first this morning from this text that Christ willingly emptied himself in total humility. So Paul instructs the believers here in Philippi to take on the mind of Christ. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he says of Christ that he was in the form of God. Now, uh, theologically, we call this the doctrine of the incarnation. Wayne Grudem, I think, has given a very uh, simple, succinct definition of what the incarnation is, where he says that it's the act of God the Son, whereby he took to himself a human nature. And we need to have clarity on this this morning, because unfortunately, it appears that uh, this doctrine Doctrine is one where the majority of professing followers of Christ in our culture are extremely confused. Uh, recently, Ligonier Ministries released the 2020 State of Theology Survey, and in this survey, it indicated that 65% of evangelical Christians indicated they believed that Christ is the first and greatest being created by God. 
As in they see Jesus Christ, 65% of evangelical Christians see Jesus Christ as a being created by God. And this teaching is far from being new. The teaching first came onto the scene in the 4th century. It was through the Alexandrian presbyter Arius. He was teaching that Christ was a created being of God, and his teaching was condemned as heresy in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And here's why it's so important that we get the incarnation right. If Jesus is a created being of God, then he's not fully God, and it means he's inadequate to be our Savior. We cannot lack clarity on this. This is not insignificant that we misunderstand the identity of Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles for just a moment, a few pages over. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 15 through 20 here in just a moment, and we need to see this passage of scripture, and it's, it's so important for us to see this, because we see in this text that not only was Christ not a created being of God, Christ is the one through whom all things were created. His fully God, Colossians 1, 15, says he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. What Paul intends by that word firstborn is not that Jesus was created, but that he is preeminent in all things. He is first in all things, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. <clears throat> firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, which qualified him to make peace by the blood of the, cri- of the cross. Christ was and is and always will be fully God, and it's not insignificant if we get this wrong. If we get this wrong, we lose the gospel. Paul says in Philippians 2.6, he was in the form of God. He was fully God, but watch this, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Look at the humble example that we see from Christ in these next few verses. We see that he embraced limitation. Verse 7 says he emptied himself. So even though he existed as God, he laid aside his benefits and the privileges and the advantages of his deity, and he embraced a humble posture of service. It's not that Christ became less divine. It says, verse 6, he was in the form of God, so he was still fully God. Colossians 1.19, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Christ was still fully God in every divine sense, and yet for our sake, he lays aside those rights and those privileges and the advantages of his glory, and he embraced physical human limitations. We also see that he embraced relegation. Verse 7, he took the form of a servant. The king above all kings takes the form of a servant, and he's born in the likeness of men. So verse 6, again, he was in the form of God. Verse 7, he took the form of a servant. So it was full divinity and full humanity. Fully God, fully man, not either or, both and. And in his humanity, we see that he embraced humiliation. It says in verse 8, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of, the point of death, even death on a cross. We have to ask ourselves this morning, what is the foundational motivating force that drove Jesus to embrace this humiliation? We find the answer in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Watch this. Pay attention. It's so important. Who for the joy, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So follow this progression of Christ's humility in verses 6 through 8 back in Philippians chapter 2. This is what we find in verse 6. It says, he was in the form of God. So Jesus was fully God. Now watch this progression of humility. He was in the form of God, but he goes a little bit lower. Does not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he goes even lower. He emptied himself. It goes even lower by taking the form of a servant. Even lower, being born in the likeness of men. Even lower, being found in human form. Even lower, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, to the lowest of lows, even death on a cross. And what is it that drove him to embrace this humiliation? What is it that drove him to empty himself? It was the joy set before him of bringing glory to God and bringing salvation to sinners. The cross was the greatest agony in all of history because Jesus was not just experiencing physical death. He was absorbing the fullness of God's wrath against sin. The cross was designed by professional Roman executioners whose job was to inflict the maximum potential torment on its victims. It was the ultimate Roman symbol of fear that stood as a reminder of the consequences of what happened if you were to defy the empire, and it was the ultimate humiliation. Victims were stripped completely naked. They were publicly tortured for hours beyond recognition. Ultimately, they died of asphyxiation. And Hebrews 12 says that it's for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And watch this. It says he despised the shame. That this is what happened on that day on the cross. Shame was seeking to openly mock Jesus, but Jesus openly mocked the shame. Jesus became the shame in that moment. Jesus became the shame of torture. He took the shame of mocking, the shame of nakedness, the shame of execution. Christ kept his eyes fixed on the glory of God and the joy of saving sinners. And he looked at shame and said, you will have no power over me or those whom I will save. In that day, he told shame that it was finished and he stood in victory over guilt and shame. Paul expresses this most clearly, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that for our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our sin. At the cross, Jesus became the worst of who we are. He took our shame. He took our humiliation. It means that Jesus became your affair. Jesus became your divorce. Jesus became your porn addiction. Jesus became your substance abuse. Jesus became your spiritual failures. Jesus became your lust and your gossip and your slander. Jesus became our brazen political idolatry. And why? So that we could become the righteousness of God. He's done this for us for the joy that was set before him. He humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what we find here in verse 9 is, I think, maybe the best use of this word in all of Scripture. Major turn here in verse 9 where Paul then says, Therefore, in light of all of this, in light of the fact that he, the king of kings, made himself lower and lower and lower and brought himself to the ultimate low, therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ willingly emptied himself in total humility, and second, Christ will be exalted in the glory of his total supremacy. He is the name above every other name. 
Christ is exalted above every king. Christ is exalted above every president. Christ is exalted above every nation, above every Supreme Court justice. There is no name that is greater than his, which is why there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Because before Christ gave the instructions of the great commissions of his disciples, he, he gives them this, this, this uh, truth that they root the great commission and the instruction and their obedience to the great commission when he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we see them recognize this authority. We see them recognize him as the Lord above all lords, as the king above all kings, as the name above all names. Apart from Judas, every one of the disciples suffered severe persecution or even martyrdom for the name of Jesus Christ. And I fear that over these 2,000 years since those earliest followers of Jesus, we have lost our sense of reverence for the name of Jesus Christ. Do we acknowledge and do we recognize this name with the same sense of fear and trembling? Over the last few decades, I I think some of this is good, but some of it I I think is a bit negative. The last few decades in modern church culture, we've, we've gone to great lengths to try to make Sunday morning feel a little less stuffy. Right, like we, we probably dress most of us a little more casually maybe than we did growing up, uh, going to church. We want to we want to have uh, uh, environments that are warm and welcoming and inviting, sing music that's a little bit more modern. But but I fear sometimes that what happens as we pursue and chase relevance is we lose our sense of reverence. Do we revere and honor the name of Jesus Christ? Do we revere and honor his name in the same way that these earliest followers of Christ did? Michael Horton has said, the early Christians were not fed to wild beasts or dipped in wax and set ablaze as lamps in Nero's garden because they thought Jesus was a helpful life coach or role model, but because they witnessed to him as the only Lord and Savior of the world. Church, I don't want us to lose our sense of awe for the name of Jesus Christ, to lose our sense of awe for his glory. Paul shows us here in these passages that he's been given the highest position. Verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. There is no position that is higher. There's no president. There's no Supreme Court justice. There's no king or ruler who sits higher than Jesus sits. And as a result of this, Paul shows us that his name will be spoken as the highest confession. Since his name is the name above all names, it's at his name that every knee will bow. What Paul's doing here is he's quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, 23, where the prophet, the Lord says to the prophet, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. So that's the Lord saying through the prophet Isaiah, you can take this to the bank. This is absolutely going to be fulfilled. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul says that it will be every knee in heaven. Angels and saints and all the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation across every generation. It will be every knee on earth, both willing and unwilling. All will bow to Jesus Christ. He says it will be every knee under the earth. So even the unsaved, even the condemned, even the unregenerate will know that Jesus is Lord at the time of final judgment. It's a visceral picture that we see in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Church, the question this morning is not whether or not you will recognize Jesus as Lord. The question is whether or not you will do it in time. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every knee willing and unwilling in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this seems simple enough this morning. This should be one of the most uncontroversial things that we say all year long as followers of Christ. And yet, in many ways, we have so conflated the name of Jesus with the names of our political candidates. We have so conflated the message of the gospel with the message of America that we have given our world a very mixed picture of where it is our true allegiance lies. The psalmist writes in Psalm 118, 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 26. This is how he invites people to follow him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. And listen, Jesus speaking in hyperbole here in Luke 14, our love for everything in this world, even the love of our family and the love of our own life, everything we love in this world should look like hate compared to our love for Christ. There should be absolutely no question for us as followers of Jesus for where our primary allegiance lies. And so listen, before we get into this next section, I want to say this right away. I hope you go participate in the political process this Tuesday if you haven't already. I really hope you do. I I believe personal conviction as followers of Jesus were called uh, to be good citizens. I believe that being a good citizen uh, means participating in these processes. This is a freedom and a privilege that we have uh, to have a voice in those who are elected officials. And yet, if we've been to the polls, if we're going to the polls, there should be absolutely no question about where our true allegiance lies. And it's not first and foremost as as citizens of the United States of America, but citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Our love for any political candidate, our love for any political party, our love for any political platform, it should look like hate compared to how much we love Jesus. And so as we uh, start to close out our time this morning, this is what we're going to do the rest of our time together. I want to offer us this morning 10 signs that politics have become the object of our worship. And so as I shared with the first group this morning, I'll say the same thing here. Listen, I am prone to everything that's on this list. I think we are all prone to everything that's on this list. I think in different ways, we can just very, very quickly drift off course and we can lose sight of where our primary allegiance should lie. And so so I don't believe or expect any one of us to be perfect in all of these things. We're all sinful. We're all prone to this drift. But left unchecked, any single one of these can easily pull us away from faithfully following Jesus and fulfilling the Great Commission in this world. So let's work through these one at a time. Uh, Hopefully we do not just enough to where all of us are a little bit mad and can have good discussion in community group later uh, this week. So uh, 10 signs that politics have become the object of your worship. First, when your political opinions shape the Bible rather than your Bible shaping your political opinions. Scripture is our authority. Scripture is our standard. Scripture is our measuring rod. We evaluate every truth claim against what has been revealed to us in God's word. And, and, and I think we just, a lot of ways, getting this backwards as uh, we engage in the political process. I just want to ask you this morning, what does your Bible teach you about marriage and gender and sexuality? What does it teach you about the sanctity of human life? What does it teach you about the care of widows and orphans and immigrants? What does it teach you about work? What does it teach about the lies and deceit and arrogance and pride of leaders and how it can destroy entire nations? 
We answer these questions first, and then we engage the political process. We do not filter the Bible through our politics. We filter our politics through the Bible. God's word is our ultimate standard and authority. Second, when you are more concerned with your First Amendment rights than your great commandment responsibility. Now listen, we live in a nation where we are privileged to enjoy freedom of speech. I think this is an incredible gift, and I believe that we have a moral obligation to use that freedom to declare truth. But God is not only concerned with what we communicate, he's concerned with how we communicate. And if we cannot lovingly communicate truth in political disagreement without stooping uh, to sarcasm and condescension and insults, we not only fail to love our neighbor, we sin against the God who's created them in his image. So we love God, then we love others, then we open our mouths in this order. Make sure that we do not put our First Amendment rights above our great commandment responsibility to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Third, when you are more concerned with achieving the goals of your political party than with obedience to the Great Commission. Now, I'll I'll say right away that these two things do not always have to be mutually exclusive. Again, in the same way that we have uh, the freedom of speech and we can speak the truth of the gospel in the nation where we live, we also have freedom to participate in the political process. And this is an extraordinary privilege that generations of followers of Christ haven't had. This is a sacred stewardship. You and I have the unique opportunity to actually uh, contribute to shaping the landscape of our mission field. to to doing our best to set up the stage for a healthy and effective fulfilling of the Great Commission. So so it's not always mutually mutually exclusive, yet as as, uh, citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, above being citizens of the United States of America, our first and foremost primary responsibility is not to get any one individual elected to our nation. Our first and primary responsibility is to preach the gospel of Jesus and make disciples of all nations. And so we have to make sure we keep that in proper perspective. It is a very selfish ambition and desire for us to want America to only be great for the sake of America. What we should want as followers of Jesus is for America to be be great for the sake of the nations. That America could be a light of the gospel to the nations, and that's what we should desire for our country. Fourth, when you spend more time listening to political media than listening to the voice of God and his word. This one's, I think, fairly self-explanatory. Probably more than ever in 2020, we need to put down the phone, we need to mute the TV, we need to turn off the radio, we need long extended periods of time immersed in God's word. Because understand, please, your Bible is not just a book, your Bible is a voice. Our Bibles are the voice of God, not just what he's spoken in past, what he's still speaking to us today. And listen, When the modern church, when we are capable of picking apart the political platforms of various candidates, but we don't recognize 65% of us Trinitarian heresy, it's time to get our priorities back in order. You want to know how false teaching generally creeps into the church? It's generally when the church is focused on secondary matters. And so we've got to make sure we keep the right priority of listening more to what God has spoken in his word versus what political pundits are saying on our TVs. Fifth, when you have more in common with your non-Christian political allies than with your Christian political opponents. We see in the New Testament that even the early church was not without serious division. We'll see this in the church at Philippi here in just a few weeks. Yet in spite of the division, they were still seriously devoted to maintaining unity within the body of Christ at all costs. And this, this self-centered oversensitivity of cancel culture that says, if you do not see things exactly the way that I do, then I'm going to complete you, cut, complete, cut you out of my life. Not only is this sinful and selfish and immature, it is detrimental to the advance of the gospel. Listen, church, Satan does not need any additional help dividing us. 
And here's the reality, is, is that sometimes we seek these common bonds with non-believers over political agreement. We need to realize there are going to be people who spend their entire lives, who vote exactly like you do. You see them as allies in this life, but they're going to perish for eternity apart from Christ because they have not acknowledged him as Lord. We have to find a way as the body of Christ to fight for unity, to have civil engagement and disagreement and speak the truth in love to one another. Romans 12 as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. We uphold unity within the body of Christ. Six, when you do not pray for your political enemies and public officials whom you do not support. There's the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those even who persecute you. uh, Paul says very similar in 1 Timothy 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I think it is worth noting that when Paul wrote those words to Timothy, Nero was the emperor. Christians were being lit on fire, alive, Fed to wild beasts in the arena. And what's Paul's instruction? What's Christ's instruction? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's one of the most visible displays of the gospel. These are not optional suggestions. They're biblical commands. Christianity 101. This is my challenge to us as a church family is that we would resolve today that regardless of the outcome on Tuesday, you will commit to living out these verses on Wednesday. And that we as a people would commit to praying for our elected officials regardless of what outcome comes later this week into the future. Seven, when you oppose the corrupt character and policies of the party you oppose while suppressing the flaws of the party you support. Here's the warning from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5, 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We are very quickly coming to the place in our nation where Christians very soon will no longer have any sort of integrity or moral authority to make the case that character matters. We're quickly losing this. We have promoted people and policies in recent years whose lifestyles, whose content are brazenly contradictory to the righteousness that's been revealed in God's word. And church, make absolutely no mistake, there is a reckoning coming for the sins that the church of Jesus Christ has been overlooking. What we do sometimes is we convince ourselves we're hesitant to, uh, to uh, make known the flaws of those whom we support because we're worried, well, I can't do that. If those flaws are known, then ultimately uh, we might lose and that would be the worst thing that could happen. Listen, a reckoning is coming for every sin that we choose to ignore. A reckoning is coming for every sin that we choose to suppress. One of the main reasons why the church has lost its prophetic edge in American culture is because we have very simply refused to call good good and evil evil. And so we need to commit to this work, recommit to this work. When we see good, acknowledge it as good. And when we see evil, acknowledge it as evil, lest we invite the judgment of God and his wrath on our political hypocrisy. Eighth, when you're more concerned with how your neighbor votes than where they will spend eternity. This season reminds me of what great evangelists most of us are. Every single one of us have something where we generally don't hesitate to offer some form of uh, unsolicited opinion. And evangelism actually becomes much easier when we realize that we're all evangelists of something. This year, there, there are suddenly all these things that we did not even know we needed to care about in 2020, and suddenly many of us have become experts on them. We become evangelists about masks. We become evangelists about the CDC. We become evangelists about school. We have absolutely no problem making these things known. How about we become evangelists of the gospel? 
How about of all the news that we could evangelize others with, we evangelize with the good news of Jesus Christ. I think we have to ask ourselves this morning, what would happen in our nation if we worked as hard to persuade people to bow their knees to Jesus as we do persuading them to vote for our preferred candidates? What type of awakening would happen in our nation if we evangelized the gospel the way we evangelize college football and the way we evangelize masks and school and every other issue under the sun? We need to be reminded that eternity is on the line with what people believe about Jesus. It is not enough to get them to vote one way or the other. They have to call on Jesus Christ as Lord. Nine, when you go to social media to post before you go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, promise the people of Israel in 2 Chronicles 7, listen to this promise, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, what does he promise them? I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. How about a campaign to make America humble again? How about a campaign to make America pray again? Make America seek the face of the Lord again, to turn from our evil and wicked ways again? The Lord doesn't promise to bring revival through our Facebook posts. He promises to bring revival when we fall on our faces and we pray. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? Many of you know this. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So before we post, be sure to pray. And last, when you believe the election of your candidate is necessary for Jesus to build his church. Let me tell you what's going to happen on Tuesday. I don't know who's going to win, but I do know one way or the other what's going to happen on Tuesday. There's going to be an election, and someone's going to win. And, and I, I hesitate to say this because it's, you know, maybe I've said some things to, to ruffle enough feathers this morning. I don't want to get myself in any more trouble. But, but I, I've had this conversation. Many of us have probably had this conversation over the last month or so. Like, man, I'm just ready for the election to be over. You honestly think everything's getting better after Tuesday? <laughs> do, do we honestly, have we, have we really deceived ourselves into believing this? I don't, I don't want to be Debbie Downer this morning. But I mean, let, let's just be honest. We, we, are, we are completely polarized as a nation right now. No matter who wins on Tuesday, 50% of our nation is still going to be enraged. Probably more angry than they already are this week. So we, we need to, to keep that in, in perspective. Understand, like, things are not just going to magically get better. There's going to be an election on Tuesday. Someone's going to win. No matter who wins, tears are going to be shed. Destructive things are going to be spoken. Maybe even destructive things, unfortunately, will be done. But church, look at me right now. There's one political maxim on Tuesday evening that will still remain true, and it's this. The Lord reigns. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord above all lords. He is the name above all names. And he is the king above all kings. There is coming the day when every knee is going to bow. There's coming the day when every tongue is going to confess that someone is Lord. But it's not going to be Donald Trump and it's not going to be Joe Biden. It's going to be Jesus Christ. Because the grave was not conquered by a donkey or an elephant. The grave church was conquered by the lion and the lamb. And he's the one that we worship. He's the name that we hold above every other name. My, my prayer for our church this week is that we would embrace the words of Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. That some will trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. He is the name above all names, the King above all kings, and the Lord above all lords. So we worship him in this way today. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment as we prepare to close our time? In just a moment, we're going to do the, the most unifying thing that we can do as followers of Jesus Christ, which is to come uh, to the table to receive elements for the Lord's Supper. 
We don't come to the table this morning as Republicans or Democrats. We don't come as liberal or conservative. We don't come as left or right. We come as broken sinners who are desperately in need of a forgiving Savior, and we have one in Jesus Christ. The Savior who became the worst of your sins so that you could become the best of his righteousness. He has accomplished for us what no other president could ever hope to do. And none of these names that we will vote for this coming Tuesday will even hold a footnote in the story of eternity compared to the name of Jesus Christ. So this morning, the invitation for you is simple. Have you, have you recognized and surrendered your life to Jesus Christ as Lord? The day is coming when you will. The question is whether you will do it willingly or unwillingly. It's our invitation for, for you this morning, very simply, is that you would turn from your sin. You would put your faith in the one who became your sin so that you can become his righteousness can confess your sin, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. As we prepare our hearts, church, to, to come to the table this morning for the Lord's Supper, let's do this through examination. The Apostle Paul compels us. We should never come to the table lightly. We should always consider the gravity of what it cost the Lord to save us. He gave us everything when he gave us Jesus. He couldn't have given us more. So let's examine our hearts, examine our minds, examine our lives. Let's just ask the Lord right now to search us. Ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and our minds. Ask the Lord to reveal our sin. What words, what actions, what attitudes, what behaviors. Confess that sin to him, lay it at his feet, name it for what it is. He already knows it's true. Ask him for a heart of repentance so that we wouldn't just be sorry for our sin. We would truly grieve and mourn over our sin and we would desire to cease our sin, to stop our sin, to turn from our sin by the Holy Spirit to put the power of sin to death in our lives and to pursue the perfect righteousness that's been offered us in Jesus Christ. Finally, thank him. Thank him for the cross. Thank him that he became our sin. Thank him that he took our place in death. Thank him that he raised from the grave. He conquered the grave so that we could be raised in new life. And when we get into the matters that we've gotten into this morning, and attentions can flare, emotions can rise, and I hope you will hear my heart this morning in saying my desire above all else is that we would be a people who are marked by love for Jesus Christ above everything. So Father, we praise you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you've given us in your son, Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that's been offered to us in his name. And Lord, we recognize today that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So will he be the only name to which our knees bow, the only name which our tongues will confess that he is Lord? And will we surrender ourselves under the full authority of his life, death, and resurrection in our lives? Be glorified as we sing, be glorified as we come to the table. Let the gospel message fall fresh in our hearts once again. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
Amen.